You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. On this episode of HEDEX, we're joined by Theo Farrell, who's a professor of war studies and the deputy vice-chancellor education at Wollongong. Martin had the pleasure of speaking with Theo this week. G'day, Martin. G'day, Carl. It's um, really fascinating to get Theo on the on the podcast series as, as a view from a deputy vice-chancellor. We've had a, a great pleasure and honour of interviewing uh, some of the people in the top jobs in our universities over the 19 previous episodes of HEDEX, but to have someone who's much more involved in the operational um, delivery of university business as a deputy vice-chancellor is, is also really fascinating. From my perspective, uh, the fact that he's a professor of war studies, I mean, let, let's think about war. We've had COVID over the last however long. War's all about turmoil and chaos, and, and most importantly, you know, those that fare best through war are, are usually the best strategists. So I'm very interested to hear um, what Theo had to say. Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, we might almost give a theme to the conversation that we're having today around leading disruptive change, because we've been commenting on the imminent disruption. There's been huge disruption that's happened in the last 12 months, of course, with a shift to online delivery. And and for us to hear from Theo at Wollongong, um, Wollongong actually won the Australian Financial Review Award in 2020 for um, great learning experiences in our universities. And that came from the particular way that Theo led some significant engagement of staff in the training of upskilling and how to suddenly become experts in digital delivery overnight. So it's a great case study for us to have of how a leading proponent of leading disruptive change went about the the events of last year. And tell me a little bit about his job. So being a Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Education, you know, is that a, I mean, I understand what that role is, but over the last you know, 12 or, or 18 months or 15 months or however long we're into it now. Has that role changed? You know, would, would he be well equipped to deal with what's what's happened? Um, I, 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 I think the answer is yes, it has changed, but also its comparative um, position with regard to other senior executive roles has changed too. I mean, I was a, a deputy vice chancellor for six years in one of our leading universities and I was, I was in a position of a Deputy Vice-Chancellor engagement, and I worked alongside Deputy Vice-Chancellors academic or, or, or education. They're called either or both in different situations, not exactly the same role. And, and Deputy Vice-Chancellors research. And it, it's interesting how, um, in some ways, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor academic and or education role has been a little bit of the, the more operational and less glamorous side of our business over much of the last five or ten years, particularly the, the, the recruitment to the top job, the vice-chancellor role, has tended to focus a little bit more on the more glamorous roles of provost and deputy vice-chancellor research up until a little, little while ago. But I wouldn't be surprised if deputy vice-chancellors ec- academic and education, because they've been so front and centre into this transformation disruption leading of disruptive change in a crisis i wouldn't be surprised if more of our future vice chancellors over the next five or ten years come through that route rather than deputy vice chancellor research and i think theo with all of his credentials and as we'll hear in the interview is wouldn't be surprised to see him become a vice chancellor in australian universities in the next little while what do we have a listen 
So I'm joined today on the Higher Education Experience by Professor Theo Farrell, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Education of the University of Wollongong. Theo, welcome to HEDEX. Uh, Martin, thanks. It's, uh, I'm actually a big fan of HEDEX, so it's a real pleasure to be on the show with you. Oh, that's very good. It's nice to know that the work that we're trying to do for the benefit of the sector is, is finding some interest and support from the heartland of the sector. And it's really good to, <laughs> to be connected to you. And I, I, I might use that as a way of, um, I often introduce the illustrious progress and careers of, of our HEDEX guests, but maybe I should invite you to tell us a little bit about what your role and responsibility is at Wollongong and the path in your own development as a, an academic leader or as a leader or as an academic, however you want to take that, that's brought you to this position? Yeah, so, um, yeah, thanks. Uh, so at Wollongong, I, I have responsibility for uh, all aspects of um, uh, development and delivery of our education uh, portfolio. And so all the usual things you expect, driving innovation, uh, quality assurance, um, all of the all of the new developments we're doing in the digital space and lifelong learning and so forth. Uh, so it's a pretty typical uh, DVCE uh, portfolio. Uh, and of course, it's been particularly interesting to be in this portfolio this past year. And I'm sure we'll get onto that. Previously, uh, for, for a couple of years, I was the executive dean of law, humanities and the arts uh, at Wollongong. Uh, and before that, uh, I had worked at four different universities in the United Kingdom. Um, and, and that included a spell as uh, a Dean of Arts and Social Sciences at City University of London. Uh, and I was a professor of war studies for over a decade at uh, King's College London. It's been a bit of a war zone around the world of higher education in the last little while, if you'll excuse my um, puny attempts at funds uh, in this area. But um, I mean, one thing that you and I have reflected upon coming into this interview is that it's other sectors have been much quicker to embrace technology and to embrace the digital delivery of services than it appears that we all have in the higher education sector. Now, with all that experience you've had working all around the globe in a variety of different different roles, what's your perspective of why it has taken us so long to embrace digital delivery of services in this sector? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question for us all to reflect upon. So when I was appointed to King's College London in 2005, it was actually to act as the academic lead for a suite of online programs we were then developing. And what was interesting from that experience was, that, you know, I was, I was in that department right up to 2016, and we developed a really terrific high-end um, suite of online programs. But all of that digital expertise never made it in a big way to our campus-based courses. It was like there were two separate things. There was the digital stuff and then there was the campus-based courses. I was really curious that it was only when I became head of department that we, we made a concerted push uh, to really uplift the use of digital resources in campus-based courses. Uh, and so that was really curious. And when you think about all the other aspects of our lives, you think about how we consume entertainment, you think about how we conduct our, our financial matters, uh, all digitally rich, I mean, you know, in our lifetimes have been utterly transformed. And now we do all our banking, entertainment, everything on, on, our, on, our, mobile, on our mobile phones. Uh, and it's interesting, isn't it, that in our universities for many years now, we've had islands of excellence. We've had individual colleagues uh, who are really embraced digital uh, learning and teaching and are very good at it. But mostly we, we haven't hugely changed the way that we, we, we teach. Uh, and so that has been a curious, a curious thing. If I reflect upon why, perhaps, well, I mean, partly, I, it's partly got to do with, you know, new providers have been able to disrupt these other sectors, you know, the likes of Amazon and so forth. They've come in and they've utterly disrupted 
in the case of Amazon, the retail sector. Uh, and, and that's had an impact, for instance, on, on bookstores around the world and their availability of those in certain countries. In the UK, they were decimated by Amazon. So, you know, it's, it's a mixed blessing. In our sector, you know, the shape of universities and, and what they deliver is heavily regulated. And so and I think this, this is a great theme that's come forward in, in many discussions on HEDEX. It's been really interesting to follow the discussion around the extent to which disruption is, is possible in higher education because of how it's regulated. Um, so I think there's that. And also, I mean, universities have been around for a thousand years. Uh, academic disciplines have developed over time. It's a strength that we have these deep foundations of knowledge. And so, you know, it, you, it, it, to one extent, it is, it is an aspect of the academic enterprise and a strength of it, that we have these longstanding traditions. It's partly, I think, of what, stu what students also look for when they come to university. So it, it's a mixed bag as to why we've been slow to, and, you know, to truly transform and embrace digital service delivery. But of course, last year changed everything. And well, all of a sudden, here we are. Well, it certainly did change everything. You said that well, universities have been around for thousands of years. I don't think there's ever been a year like 2020 in all that history. What, what was it like for you leading a university-wide effort to move everything so rapidly online last year, given that it had been these sort of islands of excellence in probably your university and, and most universities around the world up until then? Yeah, it, it was an, an absolutely incredible year. Uh, and at the end of the year, as I reflected back on it, um, my overwhelming feeling was one of pride. I mean, it was pride at the, at the academics in my institution and the students and the way that they just rose to what was a, an immense challenge. And of course, that's not unique to Wollongong. It's across the whole sector and universities around the world. But, it, but it went, my experience with, is obviously with regard to my university. You know, we, we had two weeks to move all of our courses and subjects online. We did it in two weeks flat we moved 99.9% .9 of our subjects online. And, and other universities have similar impressive records. And that was only possible because staff right across the board rolled up their sleeves and just you know, got stuck in. And it was also, it was a success because students uh, understood that we were all in this together and students showed immense resilience amongst incredible challenges they faced with bandwidth, with getting access to, to safe and quiet places to study, uh, with their own personal challenges that they faced. So I think as a sector and as communities, we pulled together uh, with incredible resilience. And, and partly this boils down to because we are deeply value-rooted, mission-driven communities. And, and, and that provides this immense resilience that I think is a sector we've been able to draw upon. That's been an immense strength. But it was, it was an incredible uh, challenge. Uh, it was it was policy making by crisis and by by small groups put together to manage an endless series of tasks that just fell into your lap one after the other. The tempo of decisions and change we made was was just incredibly incredibly fast. Um, and I think for us, you know, when I when I thought about what you know, I've had in mind one thing that we had to focus on to be successful. And actually, the one thing we had to focus on were our staff. Our staff, we had to up support our staff, upskill our staff. We had to provide the resources that staff could be successful because that was the key to ensuring that our students would have would progress in their studies and have and have as good a learning experience as we could provide in the circumstances. So it was just about you know having to manage all of these fires at once and keeping your eye on the key thing that would deliver success. And, and in our view, it was it was that. And I'm very pleased that you know 
What we didn't want to go on was recognized with an award from the AFR this year for the success of our, of our program to train our staff and the impact of that program. And as I said, many of the universities have similar stories, but that's how we approached it. Well, congratulations on that award and um, congratulations for managing so well in a crisis, as you put it. And I, I guess management during a crisis for someone from your discipline background is quite different from carrying out a, a plan or, or even a strategy that a, or an organisation might have developed in in calmer times. I wonder if you can help us understand what you see as the difference between, say, a strategy and, and, and what a, a plan is within a university context and, and, and what, what you think that means with regard to what universities have focused on during 2020 and are facing into the future. Is, is this a time for new plans, crisis readiness, or for strategic thinking of a really genuine sort? Yeah, no, it's so uh, coming from a war studies background, we never tire of saying that strategy is, is one of the most overused, if not misused words in the English language. Uh, because most of the time when people talk about strategy, what they're really referring to is a plan. So if you're talking about a set of objectives and how you allocate resources and activities to achieve those objectives, and it's all pretty fixed, then that's not a strategy, it's actually a plan. Now, sometimes we talk about strategic plans because we put the word in there strategic to indicate it's high level and of high importance. And look, I, th I think that's all fine. I mean, it helps people understand what you're about. But strategy from a war studies background is really when you know, you're facing a crisis or a major challenge. Um, and so it's not business as usual. Uh, and it's really about focusing on those small number of key things that will deliver success, enable you to make it through the crisis and, and meet the challenge and emerge hopefully stronger. Uh, and so, and you're right. And from my background, I mean, I, uh, I, you know, on a few times I was in Kabul advising the international forces on strategy and our job was to look, was actually to look at their war plans and, and find the strategy in the war plans, you know, where they identified the key things that were necessary for success. And it's a very interesting exercise. Uh, you'd be pleased to hear that the military are very, very good at planning, but they're not always good at strategy. So even academics can go in and teach the military a, a thing or two. So I think most of the university, because Again, in TEDx, there's been a great ongoing discussion over a series of interviews around, do universities need to change their strategies in light of what happened last year? And I think you're absolutely right to ask this question. And I think your, the previous interviewees have provided a number of really interesting insights in this question. I think universities before last year have had strategic plans. So they've identified a, a whole range of objectives which meet the needs of various stakeholder communities. And, and and indicated how they hope to take forward those objectives. And that's all right and proper. Uh, last year, we all had to produce strategies because we all found ourselves in crises with many, many things on our plate all of a sudden. Uh, and to make your way through a crisis, you need a strategy. And a strategy is to say, okay, we'll attend to all of these things we need to attend to, but we keep our, our focus on a few key things that we will direct attention and resource because ultimately they will deliver success. So for instance, in our case, it was, staff, we must support our staff uh, to, to deliver uh, as best learning experience as we can in circumstances. So I think the question you're asking, which is a fair question, is how do strategic plans have to change? And the answer will be something around redirecting capital investment into digital infrastructure. Uh, but actually, once we get beyond business recovery, which will take us through the next few years, we're, we'll be back to a new type of business as usual. And so it's not necessarily requiring a strategy. It requires perhaps an adaptive strategic plan. Okay, so um, you described in response to an earlier question that we've been around for a thousand for thousands of years or a thousand years or so, and we've had a year like no other. 
And and that year has really shaken us a lot in a lot of senses. It's taken the sector a real long time to embrace real digital disruption across the board rather than in islands. And it's seen a kickstart in innovation, as you've described it from your Wollongong context and a move from planning to thinking much more strongly about strategy. So what do you think this means for how our universities are going to need to and will have to change over, say, the next one, two or five years? You described a business as usual period and then a return to some sort of normal. Or, or do you see real disruption over that one, two, five year time horizon? Yeah, I mean, that is a terrific question and, and one that will and should be on the minds of senior executives uh, right now. And I think the coming year is it's going to likely many universities be focused on two things. Uh, one is around business recovery. Um, and you've seen quite a lot of internal disruptive change in many universities because we're, we're having to take budget remediation measures uh, and those are having impacts on our, on our structures. Uh, so that's, that's, a, that, that's an ongoing piece of work. Uh, and the second is around momentum. I mean, we've all experienced immense momentum in digital transformation last year. So universities, in most universities, and certainly at Wollongong, will be seeking to capture and, and leverage that momentum, take it forward. So I think in one sense, certainly for Wollongong and for many universities, there's no going back. We're not going to go back to the past. We're going to be going forward to the future. The question is, what's that future look like? Um, I also think a th third theme for this year is going to be how do we improve the student experience? Because I think we all realize that we did as best as we could last year but our students didn't have the kind of quality learning experience that we would have hoped. So how do we make improvements and really quite quickly, you know, for the first years that are now second years who didn't have a campus experience, you know, how, how do we give as much of a campus experience to as many students as possible? How do we improve our online resources as quickly as possible? Uh, we owe it to our students to do that as quickly as we can. So I think certainly for, for, for me, that's gonna be a really big theme. Looking forward then to say the two year mark. So the 22, 23 out to 25 period. I mean, I think there are kind of uh, three key themes. One is what does the new normal look like? Uh, and for me, the new, normal, the new normal is we're living with COVID for a generation. I mean, our, our risk in terms of outbreaks, pandemic, uh, epidemic outbreaks in Australia will probably increase as our borders open. So following vaccination, our borders will hopefully open. And that will actually expose us to higher risk of, of COVID outbreaks. And so I think we're going to be living with measures uh, to contain these public health issues for many, many years to come. I think the second is, and it's a theme again, echoing from previous episodes, is around the value proposition of universities. There's growing pressure on universities to demonstrate the value proposition with respect to our communities and the country. Uh, and, and I think that's going to be broadly around supporting economic growth. And we've seen that with the National Priorities and Industry Linkage Fund. Uh, initiative that we're, we're responding to. So this is about work integrated learning, lifelong learning, all these themes. So I think in the coming years, there's going to be more tension around that. And the third will be around digital transformation, that momentum theme I referred to earlier. Uh, and so I expect in the coming years, we're going to see CapEx, university cap, capital expenditure, capital investment uh, portfolios shift from bricks and mortar to basically digital infrastructure and, and resources. Uh, and I think looking beyond 2025, we need to be asking ourselves some big questions. You know, in the latter part of this decade, what will the, what will the learner look like? I mean, could we be facing a different, very different kind of learner? Uh, are we going to see a very significant increase in the post-25 market? Uh, so of lifelong learning needs and, 
And to what extent, and there's an interesting debate ongoing around this, the extent to which universities should and can really lean into developing micro-credentials and uh, more bite-sized uh, offerings for the post-25 market. But also for our traditional uh, market, our traditional school leaver students and, and postgraduate students, how will they change? Because, you know, today, as we, I think we were discussing earlier, we live our lives through our Android phones. So what are the next generation of digital technologies coming down the stream and when we get 5G? And how will that trans transform how we deliver education to our students? And, and I think on the one hand, we have to leverage, as I said, those, those deep uh, reservoirs of knowledge and tradition that are so important and such strengths to the universities and the things that enabled us to respond so rapidly last year. And at the same time, we have to embrace and continue going forward with digital transformation, imagining ourselves in the, in the shoes of our learners in 2025 and beginning to prepare to deliver uh, education in a way that helps them in their very busy lives uh, and, and helps them succeed in what are going to be, we know, quite different industry in the future, industry 4.0. And so it's about positioning ourselves to, to meet the needs of our students and communities in the future. So, so thanks very much for that, Theo. You've, you've presented a very um, clear and articulate picture of what we've come through, where, where we are and where we might be heading. I, I wonder if I can just bring, bring this to a close, get you to reflect a little bit on what, what do you think those scenarios mean for the opportunities that you see opening up for university leaders and perhaps more broadly university staff at the moment? Um, and how optimistic are you for all of our futures with where we are and, and where we are? Are now heading yeah i mean i think the opportunities are going to be around uh bringing in more expertise in 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 di digital digital uh technology digital design learning design stronger teams between academics um with the academic expertise and people who have expertise in digital and learning design and i think increasingly that's going to be that's going to be uh, important and and that could involve of course i mean there's a very complex now partner ecosystem that's that's developed particularly around digital technologies and digital delivery. And so I think, you know, the challenge for universities is to engage with this uh, complex partnership ecosystem, engage with third party providers and form really uh, constructive partnerships. And I thought, for instance, the interview with, that you conducted with uh, Go One was fascinating, a glimpse into the future. And, you know, wow, what a, what a really interesting, uh, uh, you know, ed tech uh, proposition there. So I think that is the future. We have to we, we, you know, we have to um, get into that in a big way. I think the long-term um, opportunities and prognosis for the sector are very strong. There's a set of challenges around how we engage with government and improve that engagement with the government. And we're very aware of that. Uh, and you know, I, I think broadly speaking, uh, when I reflect upon Australian higher education versus say the United Kingdom, Australia has very strong universities. They provide good range of services to different communities. Um, obviously very attractive in, in international markets. You know, we get lots of international students and that's because we give them a great education. Uh, and I think universities realize we need to continue to do more and better for our international students. And I think we will do so. So I think the long-term prognosis is really strong, really good. The challenge for us is to, is to continue to improve our knowledge of, of the digital future that we're facing uh, and for executive teams to have the agility to bring in expertise. And I agree with what your sentiments previously that we need to bring in advisors to support us and consultants to support us in, in upskilling our knowledge and expertise uh, because we're, we're, our backgrounds are most, many of us are professors by background with the variable understanding of, of, of digital technologies and, and business, uh, business efficiencies. 
So we need to bring in expertise to support us to transform ourselves as executive teams so we can work with our universities and our communities to transform to transform our universities for the future. Okay, Theo, well, that's some really interesting thoughts about where we've come from, where we are at the moment, and where we might be heading in the future. And we're delighted to have you share your story from Wollongong with us here on HeadX today. And we wish you and the university very well for the future. Thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Martin. It's been a real pleasure. Wow. So, so Martin, tell me what you thought about Theo. Oh, I, th I think Theo's so articulate about the issues that not only... Um, uh, Wollongong and his university staff and students have faced um, in the last year and, and, and have into the future, but the sector-wide issues. And I think the, the issues there are around continuing some momentum out of our move to digital disruption that was forced upon us last year is such a, such a clear elaboration of the challenge ahead. What about you? Oh, look, he didn't let me down. I, I feel his background in war studies is probably more... Um, ingrained and in, in, intuitive in his thinking than maybe even he knows. You know, I think if he's rallied the troops and put together solutions so quickly that they were recognised by the AFR um, last year for that effort, you know, that, that would have come from a whole heap of, you know, um, uh, ingrained um, capability. It wouldn't just be a great, let's sit together and make a plan and, and work it out. You'd have deep expertise in that area to be able to, to mobilise and assemble that quickly. I mean, I found it interesting when I looked into beyond this interview the the award that Wollongong got for um, its learning experience. It actually comes out from a staff engagement activity. What 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 happened really quickly is that Theo was a, a, able to marshal the the resources at Wollongong's at disposal to get a, a vast program of training up uh, up and running really quickly that allowed very large numbers of staff to be exposed to webinars and training and development that allowed them to very quickly um, be able to at scale across the whole university across all of its pre-existing islands of excellence have 99.9 percent .9 of its courses delivered online in a way that staff felt very supported through now i think every university in australia last year found itself making the transition whether every university's staff cohorts and cultural foundations felt there was a, a, a degree of support for that, I'm not so sure. So I think that's a, a very worthy thing to have been able to receive an award for. It really speaks to one of the things that, that we uh, we speak to regularly, which is culture, isn't it? That the, the student experience and the reputation of any organisation is heavily influenced and driven through culture and the experience that um, the staff are having and then can then pass on to the end customer, in this case, student. It's ironic, isn't it, that a professor of war studies, I mean, I don't know what the stereotypes that we all carry around that sort of aspect of, of human activity, but you can imagine why in a crisis with a, with a background and a pedigree like that, marshalling um, people to be focused on a task is part of the psyche, but to do so in a way that really engages them and focuses on their development... I think we've had a few um, responses across universities that have developed into a quite directing mode, telling people what to do and ordering around maybe is what it's felt like to some of the staff. I'm not sure that all of our universities have had a staff culture that's, that's gone down the direction of even more nurturing, even more focused on development and on support. But from what I can see, that's what's getting results here. It's almost counterintuitive. You know, in, the, in other sectors, when we've analysed culture over the last year, those organisations that have had a, uh, um, a, a bias towards a culture of order 
or uh, um, in, uh, integrating systems through their business um, generally index on that. So they go back to their, what they're knitting. So they start becoming a little bit more dictatorial. They start sharing more information and putting greater expectations on people to comply and it becomes compliance. So really that, and so that's, we've actually been trying to help them move away from that because yes, there is a lot of new information that people need to understand and, and onboard and then change their behavior. But you've got to remember the behavioral condition or the human condition that we're, we're in, we don't respond to orders in a sustainable manner. So for him to be able to engage in a way to what sounds like similar to our culture blueprint around innovation and a culture of learning where people feel like there's actually something in it for them. There's some value in it for them in taking this information on board, not just I must do this to satisfy X. Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And um, he, I mean, Theo talks a lot about momentum in that regard. And right now, where is the momentum in both staff and student expectations in our 39 universities? I think, you know, we might come back to the student expectations momentum in a little while. But if you've got your staff building towards feeling supported and on a journey of transformation and, and being reskilled for a new future that the university has a clear picture towards, then, then lucky you. If you're an academic in a university that's feeling isolated, directed, you're not sure where your university's moving, but you've got ever higher expectations on you, you're going to be suffering at the moment, I think. Yeah, and look, look when we talk about culture, one of the things that I... I, I, I for want of a better expression, bang on about, is the definition of culture in corporations is the way we do things around here. Typically, that's what they say. And if they don't say that, and they'll go to an over-academic definition, usually by Edgar Schein, around tacit assumptions. Now, both of those definitions are ineffective. They don't really work. One, what, the way we do things around here is it's too um, easily dismissed. I and mean, what does that actually mean? It's too vague. Whereas tacit assumptions is, that, is the opposite end of the spectrum. It's, it's too complex it sounds like something that you know hr runs and you know we sort of need to hand over to them hand the reins over to them the reality is culture's expectations to your point what expectations are being set by the leaders what expectations are being set by the way the leaders are actually role modeling their own behavior what expectations are being set formally through the cycle through the formal con contract and informally through the psychological contract or the evp and these are the things that together really shape culture that drive whatever experience that anyone has, be it staff or, or end customer slash student. Yeah, it's interesting when um, I asked Theo in that interview about opportunities and what things will be like in the over a one, two, five year time horizon into the future and whether leaders and staff will see opportunities through all of this. He actually had a very optimistic view, didn't he? A very optimistic picture. He saw the life of academics will change through this and a greater alignment of academic work with support from learning designers and digital experts and the like. But um, that momentum that he described, I think, is a really important issue that we've got coming out of 2020 change, a, a, a strong momentum of change in student expectations. There's been lots of comments on that. But what is the momentum of change in the, in the culture we're building in our staff in our universities and in their expectations and in their hopes for the future? If you're not on top of that in a university, then your key resource, the thing you spend more than 80% of your money on up until now, is something that you don't have a handle on and you're out of control of. 
Yeah, look, I, I tend to agree. I also really liked what uh, Theo had to say around strategy and definition of strategy and definition of how strategy and planning works and some of the ambiguity around those terms. Um, I think it is really time for renewed strategy. I think that's something that's uh, an overstatement of an overstatement. But um, Martin, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this on so many episodes, and I thought Theo put a language around it and a framework and a, a, a you know a mental a conceptual framework around it that I, hadn't been so clear to me before. He he clearly sees a difference between strategies and plans, and the way that he articulated that of having two or three things to really focus on as part of your strategic direction. Is, is so much in contrast, I think, to the fact that all 39 Australian universities at the moment have about 12 things they're focusing on. And if you're focusing on 12 things, you're focusing on nothing. And for everyone but to be trying to focus on growth of micro-credentials, growth of international students, becoming research excellent, being community engaged, doing both the, the physical and the virtual infrastructure, and just about everything else means there is no strategy at the moment. Whereas his articulation of getting a really strong focus on the student experience and combining that with a digital transformation, that sounds like strategy to me. Mm. Gee, I love it when you get a B in your bonnet. Uh, look, I, t I tend to agree. The, um, you know, when I think out of category, out of sector, there are a variety of things that, that, let's say, the banks, insurance, tech companies all sort of focus on. And they are prioritised based on a variety of weighting that either the board or shareholders sort of somewhat dictate, if, particularly if they're listed companies. Um, that being said, there is always a race to be run. So they will always be, keep, be competing on common terms for certain things, you know, um, banks, financial performance, security, safety, um, products, service and experience, governance, leadership. These are the things that they do have to focus on. However, there's all, at the moment, particularly across all those sectors that I mentioned, you've got a keen focus on digitization and experience because we know from every study across the globe that in five years' time, the dependence on technology is only accelerating. It's only increasing. So it's no wonder that we're seeing budgets that 10 years ago we were being positioned towards bricks and mortar are now being positioned towards a digital solution. Yeah, well, um, that, that's very clear, isn't it? That's very clearly happening across this sector. And as you say, it's lagging what's happened in others. I mean, the, 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 the point that, um, that Theo closed on I found very interesting because it seemed to resonate with some comments that you've shared on this platform before, Carl, of... Um, and, and I can't help but agree with this from all of the experience I've had working within the sector. Having the internal capacity when it's so distracted by a focus on business as usual in a crisis to plot the path and, and pursue the ideas towards new, new ways of working, it's, it's such a difficult thing to do to, to combine those two things. So Theo saying that university executive teams will need help they won't find from inside or from the normal consulting offerings, that seemed to res resonate with some of the views that you've had about how real change has taken place in banks and tech sector companies. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and look, you only have to look at, there's a variety of case studies. As soon as the executive decides that they've got you know, intellectual capital in-house, for things that they are either either as uh, it's your night job or it's not your day job. If they're giving people you know a role or responsibility, accountability around digital transformation when they've got a day job, which we often see, it's never going to get done properly. Plus, if you are going to the right consultancy, you're going to come across people who are deep experts in particular fields that have done this 20 times over. And so they've made the mistakes, not necessarily even about getting to an end result, 
you know, that you want quickly, they've made the mistake. So you're not going to waste money and create unnecessary risk for yourself and your shareholders and everyone else in the organization. You're going to get to a better result. The issue is, who is that? The issue is, what what does that consulting base look like? Um, I wandered into a, a place that I'm sure a few listeners may have heard of called Crown Casino about a year ago to meet with their executive and was was told, look, we need to do a culture program. We've got these uh, cultural issues. Our, ex- our employee value proposition is shot. Um, can you help? Well, yes, we've only done that for 20 years. So here's exactly what you need to do. So we were the right consultancy there. The response, unfortunately, has led them to where they are now, which is our CEO doesn't like consultants. Now, any time that you hear an executive leader say that, there's trouble because you're not in, you're not opening the doors to learning. Like what I said earlier in this podcast around a learning culture or a culture of innovation relies and depends on collaboration, the willingness to the, and generosity to engage with and participate in conversation, thought, exploration that isn't actually native to you. And so that's what consultants bring when they're at their best. And so it's about the host, the client, being able to write the right brief and make sure that you triage the right consultants into, into providing the right solution. Well, and, and uh, it sounds to me like in, if, if we compare the crown case, timing is everything, isn't it? Because there's waves of change coming through all of our sectors and there's greater waves of change coming out of the results of 2020. And look, I'm no great surfer, but um, I, I sense that if you, if you go too early on a, on a wave, then getting dumped is a risk. And if you go too late, you're in danger of missing it. There might not be another one as big as that coming again. If, if I look at the, at the, at the, at the landscape... At the, at the at the marine landscape of higher education, if you use that analogy at the moment, I can't help but see a wave coming that if you can get up at the right time, you can really get ahead as a university in 2021. Mm, boy, you've really got me on the surfing analogy. I'd love to carry that if we have more time. But unfortunately, that's all we have time for on this episode. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl. 